0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is an emotional one, frankly. It is about a tragic story that I read about in the press, the Ashley Anderson story. Ashley Anderson was a pharmacist at CVS who died because she had symptoms of a heart attack, but she never sought medical attention. Why did she not do that? Because she was afraid of leaving her work of place because of the culture that was bestowed upon her and her coworkers that they should always be at work. They should always be at work. I came across this story because I read the amazing investigative work that Emily Lacaze did. Emily is an amazing investigative journalist for USA Today that she has been covering the burnout and the culture of work amongst pharmacists in retail pharmacy. And she has done that for the past several months. In fact, she uh, published initially an article in October, 2023 eh, on USA Today. And the title of that article, Prescription for Disaster, America's Broken Pharmacy System in Revolt Over Burnout and Errors. And then subsequently, this story led to uh, Emily learning about Ashley Anderson. And she wrote the story about, about Ashley Anderson, and how, how she died at work. I've reached out to Emily to ask her to come on the show to talk about her work and what she uncovered and how did she actually uncover these stories? Is the burnout real? Is it a perception? What is the response that she is getting from the employers such as CVS, Walgreens, Target, Walmart, all of these big chains that have retail pharmacy? This is rather important because if there is burnout in this particular sector, Amongst, uh, and on other sectors, but in this particular sector where you're dealing with patients all the time, this could actually lead to errors. And these errors could lead to tragic outcomes with patients. I actually shared with Emily, as you will see on the show, a story where I was picking up medication for my dad and uh, the there's actually a mistake in uh, how often he should take the medications. And uh, had I not known better, he could have taken the medications in a different frequency which could have led to significant side effects and problems. Now, why is this happening? I think we need to understand, and this is why I have Emily Lacoste from USA Today with me on Healthcare Unfiltered today. Folks, burnout is real. It does happen. Do not tell me that burnout does not exist, but it appears that burnout in retail pharmacy is a big, 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 big problem. These stories that you should read will actually shed more light on it. I can tell you that I read the story of Ashley Anderson and my eyes teared. It is impossible to read that story without actually getting emotional and recognizing that this could have been any one of us in any work environment. I hope you get a chance to listen to the entire show, and I hope that you're able to share this show with your colleagues, friends, and anybody who is interested. This is a real problem, and I think we need to uh, attack this problem and find solutions together. Before I air the episode that I uh, taped with Emily Lacaz on Healthcare Unfiltered, I ask you to rate the show, subscribe to it, watch it on YouTube, my YouTube channel, and let your friends and colleagues know about uh, this show. And if you're in the mood to read the book, check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Without further ado, the story of a CVS pharmacist that lost her life tragically because of what's being perceived as a toxic work environment that does not allow the employees to have what basic employee needs to have. Emily, welcome to the Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm beyond thrilled that you are with me on today's show.
1: Thank you so much, it's great to be here.
0: How did you end up becoming a journalist? Uh, How did this all come about?
1: So uh, in college, I was hesitating between a major in biology and journalism. I was really fascinated by science. I was pretty good at it. And so I asked my dad for advice and he said that he always pictured me um, as a journalist, as doing more creative, um, writing and I was always very interested in creative outlets as a child, um, and so he said, you know, if you go into journalism, you can write about science. And so I I went in that direction. I got a job at the college newspaper, starting on the copy desk, doing editing, and then working my way to uh, being a reporter. And I just fell in love with it—the um, camaraderie, the excitement um, in the newsroom. This was in the '90s, so you know, just at the beginning of internet and um, newspapers were still thriving. And and so it was just a great time to be in that profession. And I realized pretty quickly that my stories could make an impact. One of the first um, stories that I did was about protests on my college campus, um, urging the University of Minnesota, where I went to school, to divest in its stocks uh, connected to uh, Burma. And the university did uh, ultimately decided to divest in its stocks after my coverage of the protests, and so I, I was sort of hooked at that point. Like, wow, you know, I've I've got an opportunity to make a positive impact on my community by just bearing witness to things that were happening, and so I never looked back.
0: Yeah, when you see when you see that a story leads to outcome, that really gives you this you know, more motivation to keep going. How and and how did you, when did you start with USA Today?
1: I started here about four years ago. I was with um, another media company that merged with Gannett, which owns USA Today. And as we merged, uh, my team and and me, we all um, sort of got folded into the USA Today investigations team. And so I've been doing I work for USA Today since late 2019.
0: And then you know, there's every every magazine or journal. They have an online outlet and a print outlet. Are they completely different? Like your stories appear only online, only on print. Are they completely separate entities, or they appear on both uh, uh, platforms?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. We're we consider ourselves um, a digital first media company, so. Um, everything that we write is, you know, primarily f- first and foremost goes online. And then we have print editors who look at all of the online stories that have been written and determine which of those stories then go into the print product. And so some of my stories do, uh, many of my stories do end up in the print product, but not not all of them. And then the print product has space limitations, So, you know, if I write a 5,000 word story it's no problem to put that whole thing online, but um, you know, most of our print products, our print stories are capped at about three thousand words. So, like for this latest story that I did, I had to go in and edit out, um, strip you know about a right. thousand words out in order right. for it to fit.
0: You know, I have to tell you, Emily. So, so one of the things that um, I've tweeted about and I've been a little bit vocal about over the past couple of years is, is a little bit, I feel like journalism, as much as I admire the profession, I've always honestly wanted to be one, maybe that's why I podcast, but I feel it's very difficult not to be biased and politicized. Like I've always felt as a journalist, you need to provide facts, you know, do investigation, you do reporting and let readers or viewers, decide every so often you could add some flavor of your views and so on but but then it becomes a little bit um, biased how do you maintain as a journalist how do you maintain this separation you could have your own political views social views whatever they are but as a journalist you you need to get this out of the mind so you could report on things how difficult it is how can you keep it going
1: yeah i think for me, it's it's relatively easy, it, not because I like possess any sort of like great ability to, to detach myself, but um, because I'm fascinated with with learning as much about everybody and everything. And so, I will give you a, an example. I used to cover politics um, as a reporter in Mississippi, and um, I would cover candidates whose platforms I, I really disagreed with. Um, For example, there was a candidate. This was back in probably 2007, 2008, who was very much in favor of um, the Old Testament, right? Very biblical, um, traditionalist reading. Women should not be in the workforce. And I just uh, put it right out there. Like, I, I disagree with that. I'm a woman in the workforce. I would like to keep my job and not go back to the Old Testament. But when I cover his campaign events and I interview him. I'm genuinely fascinated by what this man is saying. And I want to accurately write everything that I can and put it out there in an uncritical, unbiased way so that for no no other reason, than there is an accurate there's accurate documentation of this person at, at this time in this place. So that should anybody have questions a hundred years in the future, they can go back and read my story and know exactly what this man stands for. And I've got no problem putting that out because I want people to know exactly who he is, if that makes sense. Yes. And, and so I feel that way, no matter what I cover, I'm more interested in just learning, absorbing information and presenting it w- without my opinion, because my overriding opinion is that there should be a factual account.
0: Have, have you seen changes, though? I mean, you've been reporting for a while, I mean, obviously in college, but as you went into that, you know, like USA Today and other outlets, have you, have you noticed changes when you look at other people, other journalists? And have you noticed there's a little bit more of the biased? Um, are you able to separate... I guess signal from noise when it comes to reading an article, and you can really palpate the bias um, because you can sniff that, right? I mean, you're you're in the profession
1: for me. So I've I've been I, I've worked in traditional media my entire career. So n- newspapers, you know, basically, and newspapers are all um, you know pr- pretty traditional at, at their heart, right? Like most newspapers were established d- decades ago, if not you know, a century or more ago. And so, um, you know, I, I do see a difference in terms of there's a lot more online media, online only media. I think of like Buzzfeed and the Huffington Post and, and Politico, right? Like these sort of newer media outlets that are sort of edgier and they, they go after a younger audience an audience that is used to having a plethora of options available to, to them for where they get their news versus the outlets that I've worked for my entire career used to be the only place to get your news. Mm-hmm. And that that was the case for, for so long. You Wherever you grew up, that was the newspaper that you had. That was the only place for you to get news about your town. And of course, then those newspapers would have a page or two where they'd pick up new national or international news, usually from the Associated Press or Reuters. And so I feel like there was this sort of homogeny and uh, a very agreed upon narrative that all Americans sort of um, had because they just didn't really have any other place to get their news. Right. And so what, what I have seen is not so much a bias from within or a change from within the industry, so much as a huge change on the outside of the industry where now people have... A choice and they're hearing different opinions and people who are presenting news as though it's fact but it's actually very much opinion based right and now they're pointing at us and saying ah fake news or you're biased and i really don't think from what i've seen and i've been doing this almost 30 years my colleagues and i haven't changed the public has Mm-hmm. and um, some of my colleagues, like I said, H- Huffington Post and, and the like have adapted to that change and are trying to capture certain audiences but t- sort of traditional journalists we've always yeah. been this way and you can call it liberal if you like but I think at, at our core, journalists are, we have two pretty central missions one is documenting history as it happens and, and that just requires accuracy not not bias just i am a mirror and i'm reflecting back what i see and and the second is our mission is for the common man woman people right we are very much interested in community in what benefits everybody and so when i hear people say you know journalists traditionally are very liberal sort of chafe at that because it sounds political, and it's not. It's, it's we're community-based. We, we care for the common man, and that seems to be the antithesis mm-hmm. of a certain capitalistic, uh, you know, right-leaning ideal. Um, and, and so I don't, yeah, I, I, I understand the criticism, but I think it's coming from the.
0: It's probably overblown out of proportion.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's political. Yeah, you don't see a lot of journalists getting into the business because we really care about right um, the billionaires.
0: How do you get your stories? Uh, I mean, I guess the question is really twofold. Number one is, you know, how often do you need to find a story to cover, and how do you get those? And number two, how do you decide to cover a story? Let's say I call you, email you, whatever you know, what the process that you go through until you say, you know what, this is a story I'm going to cover. I'm going to spend some time investigating and interviewing and learning about versus, okay, it's a good story, but probably not for me. Is there a process in your mind to make a decision of a story that you cover? Because from there, I want to go into this emotional story that I read for you, that you wrote, which led to our conversation. But how do you decide whether something is worth coverage or not.
1: Right. Uh, it, so it depends. I'll just first briefly mention if early in my career, when I was a beat reporter, I, I had certain beats, you cover a bit local business, or you cover local politics. And there's more to do, I was writing two or three stories a day. And it's pretty easy to decide what to cover, you go to all the city council meetings, you go to the Transportation Commission meetings, right, you're just really writing about things that are happening every day. In investigations, it takes a lot longer to uh, produce those types of stories. It sometimes can be weeks, months, maybe even a year or more. And so we really have to choose those stories carefully because that's an enormous investment of time and resources. And to to do a story that like, you really have to make sure it's gonna benefit a lot of people or have interest, a wide appeal or make some really significant contribution or change and so uh, we get tips a lot um, as part of the investigations team, my, my colleagues and myself. We receive a lot of email tips, a lot of telephone tips, sometimes from people we've never talked to or sometimes from sources who we've just kept in contact with or tipping us off to something we might want to look into. Nine times out of 10, those tips don't result in anything. We'll look at them all, um, but either it's something that, that there's no way to prove it Um, Or it's something that might be interesting, but not really relevant to a broader group of people, right? Like, so I, for some reason, I get an inordinate amount of tips about homeowners associations that are really unfair. And those are probably great stories. I'm sure everybody in that subdivision would read the story, but it just doesn't have a wide enough appeal to the general public, you know, whether... The president of your homeowners association in Fairbanks, Alaska, or wherever is, you know. Um, but Emily, are not, you
0: are you now focused on healthcare as a sector in terms of your reporting? Is this like or not necessarily?
1: Um, so not necessarily, but I'm really interested in it as of late, and I'm continuing to dig into it. I have written previously about healthcare in the past, so this uh, my investigation into retail pharmacy. Although that's the first investigation in a retail pharmacy I've done. I've definitely done other healthcare related stories, but I've done investigations on criminal justice. uh, Well,
0: this was was big. I came across your article and uh, the story of Ashley Anderson. And um, we're linking this to the podcast uh, notes. But um, there's a lot here to talk about. Um, But maybe I'll start by how did you first learn about the story? Some tip, uh, just Twitter social. How did you learn about
1: it? Oh, well, I was interviewing pharmacists for an investigation that I was working on, that resulted in a story I published in October. Several of them had mentioned Ashley Anderson. When we were talking about stress and burnout and the impact that it has to individual retail pharmacists, several of them so have, not,
0: not to interrupt, but what made you decide to dig into burnout and retail pharmacy that led to the story in October 23?
1: That was a tip, actually, that I got from a source who I had written about back in 2019 for something completely unrelated. And um, She had called and said, I don't know if you might be interested, but my, um, I went to CVS to pick up a prescription for our son and the prescription was wrong and we had to rush him to the hospital. And, um, it was one of the families who I profiled in that story. And she said, it just, it's nuts. I I don't know if this is happening to other people, but if you're interested, maybe looking into pharmacy, pharmacy errors and about a week later, a colleague of mine had a tip come in via email from another family that had a medication error, and so it was those two back-to-back tips from totally unrelated people in different parts of the country that made me think, okay, this might be a story. And so my initial thought was, I'm probably going to find some evidence of pharmacists um, just being careless, and this is a story where, in my mind, I'm already seeing the victims are, you know, families and patients, and the the villains if you will, are the pharmacists. But what I learned very quickly in talking to pharmacists was that the pharmacists themselves were victims and um, victims of a corporate culture that has stripped them of resources and saddled them with tasks and imposed upon them these metrics that really force them to work in ways that they feel are unsafe and heighten the risk of those errors that initially got me interested in this topic.
0: When you got that tip, which led to the article in October, 2023, which I also read and would and we'll link to that, but how did you start? And did people talk to you freely? Were they afraid of telling you like, and how, You just pick up the phone and call random people and say hey do you talk to me and then you've got so many retail farms you've got walgreens cbs walmart target like everywhere they have some jewel asco how much you know do you go to all of them like what's the the process i guess because you want to get to the truth right your your goal is to get to the truth um uh, i presume you've spent a lot of time to get the actual facts
1: yeah i started i didn't really know any retail pharmacists so i went to linkedin and just started a messaging random pharmacists and several of them didn't respond or just you know responded once and then quickly ran away from me and it, it took me a while until i found someone who was willing to talk to me and that person led to the next person And pretty soon I started building up more of a source list. And as I was talking to people, they would recommend other people. And, And then there were a few key pharmacists who were really instrumental and helped connect me with just a bunch of other people. And once that started happening, then more and more people felt comfortable talking to me. But the start of any investigation, especially into something that you've not previously written about, is very daunting because you don't know you don't know anybody and you don't know anything. And you're just cold calling people and hoping that they'll give you the time of day. What it, did you find out? Yeah. What did you, yeah, what,
0: did you that, what did you find out um, back then, before you learned about Ashley? You were starting, you were investigating the larger picture. What did you find out?
1: Well, what I found out was that pharmacists were acknowledging that there were errors and telling me that there are more errors than there ever have been. But it's not because pharmacists are are somehow careless or lazy that they really felt as though they were being pressured to work under conditions that created scenarios in which errors are just more likely to happen. For example... Being in a pharmacy by themselves, having to fill 500 prescriptions a day and having computer monitors that are turning red, if you're not filling them within a certain amount of time, red is bad because then it means your store's metrics are dropping. If your store's metrics are dropping, you will be contacted by your boss, you will be coached and counseled, disciplined, possibly move to a less desirable location or terminated. I mean, there are real life consequences to not doing exactly what these companies want you to do. And they know if I'm going to fill these prescriptions safely and really verify, do I have the right drug for the right person at the right dose? Is this, are there any contraindications that might appear based on other medications this person is taking or what I have in their profile? right? Like that requires a lot of focus and diligence. And yet they don't feel like they can provide, give their attention to doing this job safely because they've got to whip through these prescriptions super fast while answering the phone within 60 seconds of of it starting to ring or that other metric will start going down while answering questions while, while handling the drive through, right? Like there's so many things that are happening all at the same time and they feel like if they do any of it well, all the metrics are sliding and they could lose their job. So they really, it, it boils down to a choice. Am I going to keep my job and practice unsafely or am I gonna practice safely and risk losing my job? And, and for many retail pharmacists working at these chains, that is just, that's exactly what it comes down to. And it wasn't one or two people who told me this. I interviewed like 50 different pharmacists from all across the country, from different chains, as well as reviewed emails that I had received from over a hundred other pharmacists. It was very consistent across the board. I was very comfortable with the fact that this wasn't, um, you know, a few people just struggling that, that this was very much an across the board experience that was being faced by pharmacists.
0: You know, um, in your first story from 2023 um you linked to an audio which is like 20 or 30 second audio of one of the managers in CVS i believe who was literally almost like yelling to the ph- at the pharmacist about certain metrics and he actually used profanity as well like it was just i couldn't believe what i was hearing like i i mean when you saw that i mean i mean this must have been shocking to you as a journalist when you learned about all of these things.
1: Yeah, I, I, those, I listened to five hours worth of meetings that that man um, conducted, and it was it, very threatening. They were being threatened. Um, basically, if you're not hitting these targets, we're not going to approve more pharmacy tech hours. So, so basically, you're going to have even fewer staff available to you if you're not able to hit these targets. Um, and these targets were not the type of thing that I think would benefit the general public. It was, some of it was vaccinations, but some of it was just pushing, you know, store membership cards. Really have nothing to well, do I mean, with
0: mean, the one, the one I listened to, Emily, was like the flu shots. Like, hey, yeah. I don't care about, I don't care. I mean, you just gotta do the flu shots. Yes. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Did did you, did you call like Walgreens and CVS like this? Like, did you call leadership and were they willing to talk to him? Like, Hey guys, I mean, I have like tape I have yeah. in front of me. Did you call them? And did they, what happened there? If you did.
1: Yeah, I, I did. um Well, so that tape was CVS. Um, and I, okay. and I did speak to CVS and um, told them what I had heard and asked, you know, for their comment on that. And I think basically what they said was that that is not, you, you know, the way that they do business, that you know, certainly pharmacists should not be threatened and that, you know, as to the quota on the number of flu shots that they, um, you know, that I, I think they were trying to distance themselves from trying to hit any hard numbers and, and that, you know, these these metrics are just based on volume that the store had done the previous year and, um, you, you know, sort of couched it in very corporate terms if you will yeah
0: and this man is still employed
1: as far as i know
0: i mean that's i mean i i it's hard it's just i mean i it's terrible honestly um i hope somebody from cbs is listening to this podcast then you learned about ashley anderson as you were doing that investigation how did this come about people just mentioned her name or something
1: yeah several people mentioned her name. And I did look into trying to contact her family at the time I was working on that um, other story, but they have a very common last name, um, Anderson. And I didn't know know, exactly how to reach out to her parents. And I just thought, you know, this sounds like a separate story. If I am able to contact them, I, I don't think that belongs in this story. I think that would be a separate story altogether. So I just tucked that in the back of my mind. And then once that story was published in October, I, I was able to connect uh, with her family and and start the interview process with them.
0: So the Ashley Anderson story is, is just shocking. I mean, this is a young woman who... Um was going really through the ladder, something happened where she decided not to keep pursuing advancement in career, which was not clear from your story, what happened, but something happened. And she decided just, I don't want to just be a retail pharmacist. And that's it. What, nothing is wrong with that. But she was probably having aspirations to do something different, I believe, from reading between the lines. And then she just dies because she wouldn't go to the hostel.
1: Yeah,
0: can you take us through like, how did, you, how did you go through the, the process to, to know what's going on? What, what information you, you captured? I mean, how, how difficult was it to to do this story?
1: Um, it, I mean, it was difficult. Ugh. Anytime you're writing a story about somebody who dies or something terrible happens to them and you're interviewing their family members, it's incredibly hard because you just feel empathy for them and you're asking them to please reopen this wound and be very vulnerable with somebody they've never met before. I've, I've never met them, I've still never met them in person. I'm just this voice on the other end of a, of a cell phone call asking them to be incredibly vulnerable and take me back to probably the worst time of their life. So for me, that's the most difficult part is is earning their trust and and doing it in a way that's respectful and hopefully serving the greater good.
0: Um, I mean, I'm re- I was reading and I knew what the outcome is going to be. And I was hoping it's not like I could, like I was reading. First of all, you're really a great storyteller. I mean, I, I couldn't, like I was just reading and I knew it's going to be a tragic outcome. I'm hoping like, you know, maybe somehow magically this will not be a tragic outcome and i was reading like the text messages between her and her boyfriend like you no know, for god's sake just go to the damn emergency room like i mean it's 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 unimaginable that you feel you're almost i mean she's a healthcare professional having symptoms she knew there could be heart attack and she's still was fearful of of going like I, I I don't know what to say I mean what what was why didn't she go like what did you what did you uncover why didn't she just leave?
1: And that's the big question, right? Well, why didn't she go? And that was the whole purpose of the story was trying to get at why didn't she go when when she knew she was having a heart attack, and you know what those closest to her said was. She was working in, in an environment, in a culture that doesn't let you go. You can't even go to the bathroom. You, you, you know, you can't eat lunch. What makes you think you can close the whole pharmacy and, and go to the hospital, especially if maybe it's not a heart attack? And that was clear from her you know, messages as well. Like the last thing she wrote was, you know, hopefully it's nothing and I'll be back at work.
0: I mean, she was I, she was afraid that if she goes, and it's not a heart attack, she would be penalized, basically. That's what I gathered from the story.
1: That is what her co workers and family think was in the back of her mind. And what I hoped through my story, to show was that indeed she did work for a company that expects a lot of self-sacrifice. Now, obviously they, they don't want anybody to work until they die um, and, and I absolutely believe that. And I had a really good conversation with, with uh, Michael DeAngelis, who's the vice president of communications for CVS and what I thought was a, a candid conversation. And I think he, I think he feels awful about it. And I don't think that's the outcome anybody wanted, but you've got to step back and recognize the culture that this company and many companies have created in this country where profit, profitability is more important than anything else. And they can say everything under the sunshine differently. But at the end of the day, that's the culture that they've created. The expectation is that you keep working. It doesn't matter if you're sick. It doesn't matter if you're miscarrying your baby and bleeding on the floor. It doesn't matter if you're vomiting in a trash can behind the pharmacy counter. It doesn't matter if you've got permanent kidney damage because you've held your bladder so long over so many shifts. You keep working. And you keep hitting those metrics, and I don't know. Nobody was in Ashley's mind when she made that decision, so only she knows, and she's gone. But when that you... culture, I think, I think it played a role. I no. certainly everybody around her does.
0: I mean, culture does play a role. I mean, you kind of know the type of environment, and you end up working towards that environment did you did you um as you were investigating this um obviously you've talked to other CVS employees did they all corroborate the cultural element because if they're all corroborating this so I don't know what de Angelus is he's in denial I mean I obviously he he feels bad because an employee died and all of this but if every single other pharmacist is saying the same honestly I mean I have no sympathy for him
1: Every other pharmacist corroborated.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I
1: would have been interested in the story. Had I not already established that from my previous reporting? Yeah. I, I spent so much time talking to pharmacists hours and hours and hours talking to pharmacists and almost felt like I was in a, like a therapy session listening to them talk about the trauma that they experienced from these jobs that just crushed them, mentally, physically and spiritually.
0: Emily, did you see this um, across all retail pharmacy? Like how much of this, let's say, CBS versus Walgreens versus Target versus Costco? Like, did you? Did you cast a wide net to see how much of this company related versus professional related?
1: Yeah. And it was pretty consistent across all of the corporately owned pharmacy chains. The pharmacists who had worked at multiple chains over the course of their careers all told me that of the ones they worked for, CVS was, I don't wanna use the word the worst because I, I, but the the one that exemplified that ethos more than, than the others. It was the most stressful for
0: them. But what when you when you talk to um, De DeAngelis and you said, Look, I've talked to whatever fifty folks and, and this has been saying like I, I'm just trying to think like no answer? Like I mean nothing saying, Well, you know, we're we're gonna make some changes, we're gonna <laughs> I don't know.
1: Sure, there were those types of statements about the recognition of the incredible um, you know, amount of pressure that has been on pharmacists certainly um, with COVID, that a lot has been asked of them, and they've stepped up and they've done a lot. Recognition of um, this inability to find enough pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to staff the stores to the levels that maybe they need to be staffed. Commitments to make changes and and citing changes that have already been made, but I mean he's a spokesperson for, right. for, you know, publicly traded company. Really beholden to shareholders. I, I don't know. I've not talked to Mike DeAngelis, the human, right? Like I've had human conversations with him, but he is right, right. my conversations with him are as a spokesperson for a company. If you take him away from that role, it might be a very different conversation. I'm, I'm cognizant that that he is not speaking for himself he's speaking for a company so i don't i i don't know really what, i can't speak to the man himself or what he he thinks i'm just aware that the
0: the, the market cap of CVS pharmacy is 96.6 billion dollars the share of uh CVS is 76.84 dollars 84 just for those who are listening I mean, how much of this, I mean, look, burnout, I guess metrics, let me step back. Metrics do exist in every profession. Sure. Like in journalism, you know, if you probably have no report in a year, like, okay, well, I'm sorry. I mean, I have metrics, you have metrics, all of these things. And to an extent, that's okay, because you need to have some accountability and reliability. And you want to also separate people who work hard versus not. Did you look at the metrics Did you find, did you investigate whether these metrics are even realistic, reasonable metrics that, uh, I don't know, they're good for people, for patients are being served?
1: It, I did. And, um, and again, like, yes, I acknowledge um, that these, the, the, these metrics are just a standard way that we all do business and, and I've got metrics as well. But I think what I found to be troubling was just the, the emphasis placed on metrics above all else. And the, um, the fact that these metrics didn't seem to be reduced for stores that were clearly understaffed, were clearly struggling, that, that even corporate knew that these stores don't have enough pharmacists to to hit the metrics that are imposed upon them and yet there doesn't seem to be any real slacking off of those metrics like they're still expected to hit it and i talked to a lot of pharmacists who are pulling all-nighters you know once or twice a week working until you know they're supposed to go home at 10 p.m but they're staying until 4 a.m to get caught up just to get the store back to where it should be and then they're starting their shift at 8 a.m you know on on three hours of sleep, multiple times.
0: I, um, that, I, yeah. I, 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 and obviously this could lead to errors. I could tell you that I was bringing medication for my dad the other day and there was an error in the directions. And had I not been a physician and knew exactly that it was an error, I could imagine that others would have had an issue. And I could I could really appreciate the fact that burnout and overwork could lead to errors is this something you would investigate outside of pharmacy Um, nursing physicians other specialists because I think I I disagree when people say burnout doesn't exist I think it does exist I think our job to know how much of the burnout is exaggerated versus the real thing your story was an eye-opener to me into a sector of pharmacy that that I didn't realize how burnt out pharmacists are. I really did not know. And I bet you a lot of people did not know that this is how much they are overworked. So my two questions, number one, are you looking outside of pharmacy into other healthcare sectors? And number two, when you spoke to these folks, were there any solutions offered? Okay, we've got a problem. Do we have any solutions?
1: So on um, the first part of the question, <clears throat> I'm not actively looking outside of pharmacy right now, although I have received um, emails and phone calls from people outside of pharmacy, letting me know that this is not unique to pharmacy, that this is happening in every industry where um, profits are, are really more important than people. A lot of private equity owned firms, um, And just like any time that you've reduced operations to numbers and and not people, I think a lot of people are feeling squeezed and burnt out. Lots of nurses have contacted me in fact. Um, But I I feel like it's very hard for me to widen my lens because um, investigations are often more powerful if you go narrow, um, but very, very deep versus broad. Because then you can't go very deep. You're, now you're shallow but broad. Now you're just sort of making sweeping generalizations, even though I believe that those are pro- probably true right now. So, but not that I wouldn't be open to to doing a targeted investigation in other industries because I do think this is prevalent. And then on the... Um, Second part of the question, the solution, so a lot of people have told me that uh, these PBMs, the, the pharmacy benefits managers, are really the root of, of what's happening right now. Um, these third-party administrators of prescription drug plans have um, so tilted the scales in their favor in terms of you know how they're reimbursing pharmacies for prescription medicine, that pharmacists are just, barely able to make a profit and it's even worse for independent, um, pharmacies that don't have the negotiating power of these big chains. Their, um, reimbursements for medications are even less than, than what CVS and Walgreens and Walmart are getting. And so, um, there are a lot of independent pharmacies closing. Um, in fact, this year is an especially bad one for them, but, um, so I'm, I'm looking at at PBMs and the lack of, you know, sensible regulation over their practices because it they really seem to be um, affecting retail pharmacy and, and putting the lives of pharmacists and patients at risk.
0: Did you sense from the pharmacists that you've interviewed that a lot of the burnout that they are experiencing was directly related because of COVID and the pandemic? Or in other words, were they actually having these issues before uh, the pandemic?
1: Yeah, what they told me was that these issues were um, already very prevalent prior to the pandemic and that the pandemic just exacerbated them to like they were at a seven and then they went to a ten with the pandemic. So these issues really, according to literally everybody I, I interviewed, Um, who'd been in the industry for any, you know, for for more than a decade or so. Everybody told me it was somewhere between 2010 and 2013-14 is when the industry really started changing and staffing was just being steadily decreased and more and more demands were placed upon them. And they were already filing complaints and, um, you know, with their boards of pharmacy there were already many state uh, workforce surveys in which pharmacists were reporting stress and burnout um, to just like unimaginable degrees before the pandemic. The, the, the pandemic just set it all on fire.
0: Did, did you did you look into are there is there shortage of pharmacists in the United States? Like I mean per capita, I mean do we have enough pharmacists? Is this because there's supply demand issue? Uh, it's just supply demand.
1: That's actually like a controversial question. Um, so it, there, according to uh, the corporate offices, there is a, a shortage of pharmacists. They're really struggling to hire enough. Um, and, and this is sort of amid a, a shortage of healthcare workers overall. But if you look at the numbers, it, there, there are about the same number of pharmacists, although we probably eventually will start seeing some pretty sharp declines because there's been a decline in the number um, of people going to pharmacy school. But the, the number of pharmacists is relatively stable. It's just that most of them are trying not to go into retail pharmacy or are leaving retail pharmacy. And then they're going into other areas um, such as ho- like inpatient hospital pharmacists, um, cl- you know, clinical pharmacists, pharmacists who are working for other entities um, like managing you know, managing a caseload of patients to make sure that they're, you know, on top of their blood pressure medication. or
0: whatever. I mean, I would love for you not giving you more work, but I think since you're really focusing on this, I think it, it you know, looking into hostile pharmacy and, and other, like looking at the profession and outside of retail is also important. It makes me wonder whether also inpatient hostile pharmacists are experiencing similar burnout. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so I've um, talked to a few of them, and, and some of them certainly are, but the vast majority of them are telling me that, especially those who worked in retail and then have, have been able to make that switch, that it's a night and day experience for them.
0: Wow, have you? Is there a significant pay discrepancy? Like the retail pharmacists do make? Do they make way more than inpatient or hospital? So that's why um, they are willing, I guess, to to burn out and sacrifice because they're getting a fatter paycheck.
1: I, I don't know. I have not actually looked at the salary scale for different types of pharmacists. I know that a lot of retail pharmacists have told me it's hard for them to make the transition because um, a lot of the hospital hospitals want pharmacists who have gone through like these these clinical internships um, and specific things that they would have had to done and like had to do in college or shortly after college and that if you spent you know a certain amount of time in retail you're just not going to have that those types of qualifications and so making that transition is is pretty hard and then also a lot of these people who've worked for a certain chain for a number of years right they, they've accrued, um, you know, like stock options and, and they're invested yeah. and yeah. or they're just five years away from retirement. So you've got a whole host of them. I just feeling as though they're unable to make that transition. Most chain pharmacists would love to go to independent pharmacies, but th- those are closing left and right too. So I think they're just really in a bind. And then the, the other thing is that most pharmacists I've talked to went into retail because they really like working directly with patients. And so, you, you know, some of the, the clinical stuff, I don't know that they, I'm sure they'll correct me if I'm wrong, get the same level of interaction with patients in yeah. other areas of pharmacy.
0: I mean, look, in my local pharmacy here in my neighborhood, which we use, um, I literally have it to assist them when to go. I actually go to pick up medications like after 10 or 11 p.m., or very early in the morning, because during the day, I will have to wait 30 to 45 minutes to pick even one or two prescriptions. And I would be angry and upset waiting in line, but then I look behind the counter and they're working. Like, it's not like, you know, they're actually sitting down and they're not working. And I kind of feel bad, I'm like, no, I can't be angry because they're really running around and on the phone and everything. And I just told you like there was an error in one of the prescriptions prescribed, which is like a it's a cardiac medication. So it's actually a big deal. So I'm really very sympathetic. I'm just really struggling what the next steps are. Um, can you help us? Like, what are what 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 are your thoughts? What did you learn from this tragic story that put me to tears last night I was reading it?
1: Um, I think there are a lot of things that need to happen. There needs to be sensible regulation of pharmacy benefits managers and more light shown upon the um, contracts that they have, I was gonna say negotiated, but from the sounds of it, they don't really do much negotiation. They they sort of, it's a take it or leave it plan. And and so I, I think lawmakers across the country and on the national level really need to dig into how these PBMs operate and see if they can level the playing field a little bit. Secondly, these boards of pharmacy in every state, you're starting to see some like in Ohio, for for example, really stand up to the way these chains are operating and cracking down on some of the unsafe practices like understaffing these stores and this just obscene adherence to the metrics at the cost of all else. So you're seeing Ohio, California, Oklahoma, um, I think more state boards of pharmacies really need to get active in, in how these places are operating and set some ground rules too. I think those are the two main options. You know, it'd be nice to say, you know, I, I wish the chains would just fully staff these, these pharmacies and um, adjust the metrics to a more reasonable level. I, don't, well, I think they've known that, they've heard that for years. So I don't know if they're going to do that.
0: Did you sense from talking to Ashley Anderson's family that they are contemplating any litigation?
1: I, I, I don't know. I I wouldn't be able to answer that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the, in your article, you mentioned that CBS did contribute to a fund, uh, $10,000 or something like that. And the family was, um, very unhappy with that, but, um, but I, I, you know, I, as I was reading it, I was trying to think it must have crossed their mind and and probably um, probably somebody would say, well, they told her to go and she did not go. I mean, it's not really there's nothing we can't really force her to go. It's it's very difficult to prove the link of the culture issue and the work environment directly linked to that with her.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I do know that there are. Really, their main concern at this point, I don't think they're interested in, in money for themselves. I know that they were really hoping that, that CVS would contribute to create a sustainable scholarship in their daughter's name, so that every year they would be able to um, award a scholarship to, to a recipient and keep their daughter's memory alive. Um, I think that's their primary concern, is just you know make sure their daughter isn't forgotten and that she didn't die in vain and that other pharmacists might might be able to
0: learn from it. Such a tragedy. I mean, a young life, uh, very uh, just lost uh, because of this. Um, Emily, are there any other thoughts, any last thoughts you would like to leave viewers and, and listeners with? I'm very grateful for your time. And um, as I told you, I, I you put me to tears last night reading this because um, you have a way of delivering the information where I was reading a very sad story, and I was hoping it's fiction, but it wasn't fiction.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way. Just, I felt very connected to Ashley. I like think anybody who, you know, everybody in this country, especially, is so tied to their careers, right? Like, your your profession kind of becomes your identity, and your self-worth is really wrapped up in your productivity. And it's hard to disconnect from that sometimes. And so I felt, um, I, I just saw a lot of myself and Ashley. And maybe that would be my last thought is no matter where you work or whatever your profession is, just to remember that you are not your job and, and your productivity is, is not a determination of your self-worth and to just spend more time with your family and take care of yourself because um at the end of the day your job could get rid of you at any time I mean, you, your real allegiance yeah. to yourself i
0: was really touched by the billboard that the family bought to time to actually put this like you know you're Job can wait, your heart can't. I mean, this is just like it's just like I felt somebody got in my chest and ripped my heart out. I and mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah.
1: Her parents yeah. are so amazing, just the kindest people.
0: Then you had a picture of her family around her grave. It's it's really um I, I hope everybody reads this story and, and learn about it. I just hope that CVS and other retail pharmacies are really going to be responsive to this. We do not want to lose more lives. Uh, because of this this is just not the way it should go
1: i agree so glad that you thought to reach out and that you're interested in this thank you so much
0: no no thank you um emily lucas on healthcare unfiltered really very appreciative of your time of your dedication look forward to reading more stories and hopefully more stories will will lead to um to bear solutions. I mean, unless we shed more light on these things, things will continue as is. And I think our job is to continue to uh, educate the public and make sure people are aware of the problems and hopefully this leads to solutions.
1: So too thank you so much.
0: All right, folks, thank you so much for listening and thank you for uh, supporting Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very grateful to my guest, Emily Lacaze, amazing reporter and amazing report. This is really something that is enlightening and I'm very glad that I got a chance to speak with her and I'm very glad that you got a chance to listen to the entire podcast episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and let me know what you think about this podcast. You can follow me on Instagram, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered, or Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by John Maxwell. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Until next time, take care.